Well, Happy New Year to all of you. What a great start this morning. I see so many of you here. I have two quick announcements before we dive into the text. My first announcement is this. If you're into making New Year's resolutions, make this as a resolution. Make church a priority, not an option. If it's an option, you'll show up once a month, once every other week. The priority, which it is in Scripture, you'll be here. All right? So make that covenant with yourself. Second is, I just got finished speaking to the junior high and the senior high, to the men, reminding them of this meeting that we have next Saturday from 8 to 11.45, dealing with the moral battles, moral integrity, the moral struggles on the internet that men face, women face it as well, but we want you here. And so men, if you say, well, I don't have a problem with that, let me remind you, if you came through the line of Adam, you have a problem, all right? So you need to be here, okay? Now, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter... No, we're not starting over again. We're not starting over again. But we are doing a two-part series here on moral integrity. And what we're going to talk about today is going to sort of move into a segue into next week. But uh, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's hard for me to imagine, but in 2005... This far back, 2005, the largest hurricane, Category 5, hit southeastern United States, flooding New Orleans and coast of Florida and different places. And what happened was, when the storm surge was raging, the levee, the levees couldn't hold it. They were compromised, people were blaming the engineers and so on, but whatever it was, they broke. And the floodgates just came pouring through. The whole city was inundated. It was underwater. Many of you remember it. Many of you actually went down there to help. And yet, in the 1990s, somewhere in that vicinity, the moral levees of the world, particularly the United States, broke with the internet. In came a flood of moral depravity, an absolute flood. And the damage this has done is not even calculable. There's no way to even discuss how much damage has been done. But there's, there's no reversal. This is the problem. The problem with evil is once it enters a society, you can't reverse it. You can't just put your finger in the dike. You can't just repair the levy and hope that it all goes away. Because the human heart loves its own flesh and its own desires. And once evil has entered, it just it comes in like a flood. It was probably four or five years ago, maybe it was, I don't know how many years back, but a few years back, the first time that I heard a public figure, a congressman or a senator, curse in public. You all know what took place this last week, all right? With a new freshman congressman uh, woman who came in and decided to pick the filthiest language you could possibly pick. And you know what's going to happen? Everybody's going to try to do one-upsmanship. It's a floodgate. It's just what the Apostle Paul refers to as this present evil age. That's what we live in, all right? You can't escape it, but you can be vigilant. We're not here to paint a picture of, of such gloom and doom, but we are here to paint a picture of helping people deal with this issue, and particularly the damage that pornography has done to marriages in this church and all around the land. So we're going to 
face this thing head on next week. We're also going to face it these next two weeks today and next week at our, at our men's gathering. Um, I'm going to piggyback a little bit on what Bruce Campbell spoke on last week when Bruce talked about forgiveness because there needs to be a lot of forgiveness on both sides. It isn't just men that are struggling with this now. Women are struggling with it too, maybe not as much. But there's just much going on in a, in a, a world that I never lived in. I, didn't, I just was not brought into that world. The first time that my family owned a television set was when I was nine, nine or ten. And I remember it was black and white, there were three channels, and now I can't even turn on our TV. The clickers and remotes are everywhere. I have no idea how to even do it. I'm just not technically knowledgeable in those areas. But it's, it's very, very different. Very, very different. The floodgates of morality are here, and they're here to stay, unless God does an incredible work bringing about revival within the body of Christ. So it can't be reversed. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27, open up with that. Then we'll dive in to the subject matter at hand. Here's what you read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move upon the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Father, Perhaps as never before, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and ears to hear from you. We might understand the deep truths that are found in your word to heal us from the struggles we face every single day as broken people. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the years that I have, and I don't do much counseling anymore, but in the years that I would do some counseling, and um, here is what I have heard through the years. I'm going to break this down into three scenarios. And we're hoping for some healing here today, all right? We're not interested in husbands and wives getting into fights over all this. We're interested in some healing. But here are the three scenarios when a wife, and I'll be addressing sort of the, the, the man being the problem here, when the wife catches her husband on the internet looking at things he shouldn't look at. Somehow it, it, it's made known. First scenario, the wife catches the husband, the husband repents, they go to counseling or they just deal with it on their own, they work through it, they solve it, and they move on by the grace of God. That's scenario number one. That's a rare one. Scenario number two, a wife catches her husband looking at things on the internet, and she sees him as so vile, so depraved, so disgusting, she wants nothing to do with him. They might live out their marriage, but there's no more intimacy. It's over. It's pretty much done, other than just signing the divorce papers. Third scenario. The husband gets caught, and he confesses, and they work on it, but he keeps going back to it. And they work on it, and they keep, he keeps going back to it. And it's, uh, she keeps forgiving 70 times 7, as Jesus talks about. And after many, many years, she's done, worn out, can't take it any longer, and the marriage dissolves. Those are basically the three scenarios that I've experienced in the years that I've been pastoring. As I said earlier, the damage is incalculable, what is being done. We know the enemy is behind this. For we press a wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Even the world, those outside the kingdom, those who would not consider themselves to be followers of Christ, those who would consider themselves to be secular or whatever, there are even atheists today 
atheists against pornography because they know the damage it's done in their own lives. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, the producers of much of what goes on on the internet, uh, the video games, they are not allowing their children to play video games. I just read a huge article on it because they know the damage that it's doing. That is not to say you can't play a video game. It's the addiction to the video games. They say it's physically shrinking the brain and damaging the brain. It's rewiring the brain. And the same is true with pornography. And the, the floodgates are open. And I give little hope to where any nation is going to wind up if something isn't done. And I don't think the government's going to do it so the church is going to have to step in and help pick up the pieces. Because the law of the harvest is now starting to come in and even the secular world realizes they're inundated with the consequences and they don't know what to do. So the church ought to be a place of healing and a place of restoration, a place of counsel to work through this. Because everybody deals with moral problems. Every single person. There is no one who can escape this. All right? So where did all of this actually start? I'll tell you what is so great, and particularly if you happen to be visiting, maybe you decided you're going to start coming to church, what have you. Maybe you haven't been in the Bible or don't know much about it. Let me tell you something that is beautiful about Scripture. The Bible has the ability to tell the absolute truth about human nature, even though human nature hates what the Bible says about us, all right? The Bible paints the condition of the human heart, as Tony said earlier, as broken. The Bible paints a picture in Genesis 1 of God creating male and female, two distinct genders. The God uh, paints a picture in Genesis 1 and 2 of a creation of a male and a female and what marriage looks like. And he paints that picture as very, very good, the situation. The next picture that is painted is in Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters the world. When it says that God makes man in his image, that is known as the Imago Dei. But once sin entered the world, that image, as you've heard me say so many times, was shattered. We showed a video weeks back. I said, I want you to see what this actually looks like, where, where a, a vase or a bottle is dropped and hits a cement concrete and just shatters. We have trouble grasping that, but that's how God describes this. God was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He created them. This is very good. Now let's take a look at where all this begins. Turn to chapter 3, if you would, Genesis chapter 3. Somewhat of a review of things we've looked at in the past. Let's take a look at it again. Here we go. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. Naked and not ashamed in Genesis 1 and 2, naked and ashamed in Genesis 3. Without going into great detail or description, God says something has happened. Shame, guilt, fear, hiding, something has taken place. All the psychologists and all the psychiatrists and all the social studies from a secular point of view do not know why the human heart is the way it is. They just can't figure it out. The Bible makes it very clear. It's sin and it entered the world. All right? They knew they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, and we've been doing this ever since. We're always in hiding. Always. And hiding always takes a tremendous amount of energy to hide that I'm looking at something on the internet or I'm spending too much or whatever. There is something about hiding where you're always trying to cover the tracks, where the fig leaves have got to be covering something emotionally or physically or what have you, and that requires a lot of energy, a lot of energy. But this is what Scripture clearly tells us, all right? So they hid themselves and made coverings. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? Famous line, Where art thou? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He now has a conscience. There was no conscience prior to the fall. There was no need for a moral conscience prior to the fall. Their, their, their minds were were pure. There, there was no sin. Once sin came in, conscience comes in. And conscience starts speaking. He says, I heard you in the garden, I was afraid, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? And you've heard me say before, I think it's conscience that tells him. All right? Have you eaten from the tree that, is, that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate. So here's the blame shifting. All right? Blame shifting. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So many messages, thousands of messages have been given on dealing with the brokenness of mankind in this particular chapter. This is where it all starts. This is where everything starts. And I thought real long and hard about this because there's a lot, there's a lot of joking between the difference between men and women. Some of it's very funny. It really is. If your marriage issues, how we think, and so on. And I'll read some in, in a moment. But it's also very serious because we actually became estranged from one another immediately. Men and women became estranged. Even if two people are standing at the altar saying, I do, and putting the rings on one another's fingers and taking their vows, they are estranged from one another from the get-go. I've often said every marriage is programmed to fail unless energy is put into it day after day after day. It's just how it works. That's the fallenness and the brokenness of man. So here the scriptures tell the honest story. Now, when I say we become estranged, we actually are foreigners. You've heard the, probably heard about the book that men are from Mars and women from Venus or whatever. I never read it, but I, you know, it just talks about all the differences. I'm sure it was probably funny and, and so on. But... This is not funny. These are serious matters here. But there has to be a little bit of lightness in all this because of the heaviness of this subject. But my wife and I celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary last year, so we went on a cruise. And while we were on the cruise, and I think this really highlights this. Oh, does this highlight it? While we were on the cruise, I met two couples that were part of the wait staff and sharp young people, just wonderful people. And I met this one lady, and she told me, she says, oh, that's, that's my boyfriend. We're getting married in March, whatever. I said, oh, really? I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from Russia. I said, where is he from? She said, he's from Greece. I said, wow. Do you speak any Greek? No. Does, she speak, does he speak any Russian? No. I said, let me get this straight. <laughs> Your common language is English. And I wanted to say this. 
and you're not fluent. <laughs> this is their common language, all right? And I'm thinking, this is a train wreck to begin with. She doesn't speak his language, he doesn't speak her language, and the common language is a language they're not fluent in. I'm thinking, this is going to be a problem, all right? I didn't say that, but I was <laughs> thinking it. And then I met another couple, same situation. And I thought, how well that illustrates the difference. Because we do speak different languages. Men speak a different language than women, women a different language than men. And so there is, there is a brokenness at the very, very beginning, at the center of heart of every marriage. And this isn't just for people that are married. Uh, you, you, any relationship in life, you're just going to begin to realize the, the incredible differences that are there. So the first thing we have to realize is this. We have become estranged from one another. This all deals with even the desire to look at things on the internet, which is different from one gender to the other. All right? Very, very different. Secondly, what was supposed to be a complement became an impediment. Adam and Eve were to be complementarian. They were to complement one another, which they did in the first couple of chapters. Everything was well. Everything was very good. They were not estranged from one another. They were to complement one another. After the fall, the complement became an impediment. It became a difficulty because they couldn't understand each other. They couldn't figure one another out. They couldn't, they couldn't step into the other person's shoes, so to speak, emotionally or physically, and understand how they could think. Thus, the blame shifting and all the things that are transpiring in, the, in this chapter. So the complement became an impediment. What was complementary became contradictory. Became contradictory. Now, I have to believe in the process of this, these next two weeks, this is probably stirring up some emotions. We're going to get to a place where I think you're going to see something a little bit different than maybe you've seen up to this point. Because there needs to be forgiveness on all sides in every area of marriage. There just has to be. There just has to be. There's going to be some rubs along the way. Or even if you're dating, or even if you just simply are dealing with, with people of a different gender, different sex than you are, it's very hard to grasp how they think. So the tagline today is this. Understand that you will never fully understand the opposite sex. Understand that you will never fully understand the opposite sex. Understand that you will never fully understand your spouse. Understand you will never fully understand your daughter if you're a man. Or a wife and son. You, you can't. It's impossible. But understanding that, what I've just said, grasping that truth is halfway through the battle. As soon as you realize that person is from another country, <laughs> that's almost how you have to look at it. They, they, they speak a different language. They think differently than I do. Once you understand that, there's more empathy than there is judgment in the situation. And this is a, this is a, a huge deal. It really is a huge deal. Let me, just, let me just tell you a couple of the differences here. I'm going to read something. I was going to say I got this off the internet. Actually, Bruce Campbell sent it to me so, but, uh, in an email. So here we are. And I think this, this came from a Christian website. But it, it, it says, understand the differences in how men and women process information. Now, this is just information. We're not even talking about the sexual temptations and desires, how they process information. The male brain is highly systematized, all right? Men put things in categories, all right? They put things in, in little manila folders in their, in, in their mind, all right? With the high ability to compartmentalize, 
compartmentalized. Things aren't connected. With women, everything is connected. Every single thing is connected, all right? A low ability to multitask. A high ability to control emotions. A low relational orientation. A high project orientation. A high ability to zone out. Let me tell you something. I have never, ever one time, I heard somebody say that. I have never, ever one time said to my wife, you're not listening to a word I said. Never. Do you know how many times she has said to me, you haven't heard a word I've said. And here's how I always respond. Yes, I have. All right, what did I just say? You said I haven't listened to a word you've said. That's it. You know, it's so true. Okay. So those are, and, and you know, there is humor. There, there really is. Even in the, in the brokenness, there is some humor. There's also a lot of seriousness in it. A tendency to act first and think later. This is about men. When faced with stress. An aggressive response to risk and a tendency to, com to compete with other males. All right? The female. The female brain is highly empathetic with a low ability to compartmentalize. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. There's a guy that, uh, I can't think of his name. He's a, I think he's a pastor and he puts on marriage seminars. And he has a, over here he has a, a male brain. And just a brain. And he goes, here's how men think. And he has all these little folders. And he, he says, everything, nothing is connected. They're all separate folders. He said, here's how we think. And he walks over here, he goes, here's the female brain. <laughs> Sparks are flying everywhere, you know. That's what happened, all right? Everything is connected. That's why conversations can go just almost anywhere, all right? That's just the way it is, all right? Just the way it is. All right, let's, let's, let's focus in. We've got some, got some deep waters to work through. I'm just lightening things up here, all right? Female brain is highly empathetic, low ability to compartmentalize, a high ability to multitask, a low ability to control emotions, a relational orientation. They're far more relational than we are. This alone causes problems. A low project orientation, a low ability to zone out. They're very, very focused, all right? A tendency to think and feel before acting in response to stress, a cautious response to risk, and a tendency to cooperate with other females. But the big deal is this that men are visual more than women are. So men are stimulated by what they see on the internet. Women are moved far more by emotions, by words, by care, by empathy. A man is stimulated immediately. And many times a woman will say, I cannot believe you would look at that. I can't believe you think that way. You're right. You cannot. Any more than a man can understand how you think. Can't happen. You can't step into the other person's world. That's why understanding that you will never understand the other person is really key to solving so much of this battle. The man might end up saying, I can't believe how much you spent on that. Why did you spend so much time shopping and so on? I, uh, I remember Gary Smalley, God used to put on marriage seminars years ago. He died a few years back. But Gary Smalley talked about uh, the difference between men and women when it comes to shopping. And how when a man says, I'm going to the mall, and I'm going to buy a shirt. He goes to the mall, gets out of his car, he goes in, he hunts, he's on, he's on a mission, he's hunting. He finds the shirt, he shoots it, he bags it, he pays for it, and he leaves. Right? Okay. Woman says, I'm going to go shopping for a blouse. She will go to every single store that sells a blouse, and she will check out every blouse in every store and spend eight hours at the mall. The guy's there for 12 minutes. All right? There's a difference, and that alone causes conflict. And you will say, I can't believe 
you could spend that much time at the mall. I can't believe you're only there for three minutes to buy that shirt. And I can understand that you didn't spend a whole lot of time picking anything out. It looks terrible. Whatever. <laughs> so these are, these are things that, that you, cannot, you cannot step into the other person's world. You simply can't. And, and understanding that is a huge part of the battle. Now, here's the trajectory that I have observed. Okay, the lightness, let's set that aside for a moment. Here's the trajectory. A man is caught looking at something he shouldn't look at. Here's what happens. He's caught. He may be shamed by his wife, or he certainly feels shame. It's all right here in, in Genesis 3. He goes into hiding. He feels terrible. His conscience bothers him. There then becomes a lack of trust in the marriage. The wife is suspicious every time he's alone on the internet. Communication breaks down because they're not going to talk this thing through. There is no transparency, and eventually the marriage begins to dissolve. You think the enemy doesn't know what he's doing? He knows what he's doing. He's attacking things from every single angle. He knows you inside and out. He knows all of us, and this is where he goes. How does Scripture counsel us in this? I'm going to go back to an old tagline that I used a number of years ago. And here's what it says. If you only knew their story, you would be more empathetic than judgmental. I just mentioned that a moment ago. When I say that, I'm not even talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about just life. You look at somebody that robbed a bank, or is a serial killer, or whatever, and you think, how can anybody do that? If you only knew their story, you'd be far more sympathetic than judgmental. What's that person's story that robbed that store? What's the person's story that looks at that stuff? What's the person's story that lies all the time? I've heard this over and over and over again of men that are hooked on pornography. Here's what I've heard. And here's the story of certainly some kind of empathy. Where did this start? Well, I was seven years old and I was out in the garage. And I was getting my skateboard and I came across this box. I didn't know what it was. I opened it up. It was a bunch of men's magazines that my dad had stashed away. And I flipped through them. And something happened. Just like that. Paul Goodnight, who was on staff here, used to say, the first time you smoke a cigarette, you can't stand it. First time you see, see pornography, you can stand it. Particularly men. Something happens. The chemistry, the rush, everything. Something happens. And it's incredibly damaging. Most men know when they first saw something, how old they were. And now the statistics say the average nine-year-old will be exposed to this stuff. I didn't see this kind of thing until I was like 14 or 15. And now it's nine. Why? Because of the internet. The floodgates have opened up. Even if your kids don't have a cell phone, the other kids do. If they ride on the bus, somebody's going to show them something. All right? It's the world we live in. You don't live in fear, but you live with vigilance in this. So, if you just knew their story, you might have more empathy. So if you talk through this with your husband or your wife, if she has a problem in this area, when you talk through it and you find out, where did this come from? It may go way back to something. And when we know somebody's story, we have far more empathy than judgment. Secondly, grace forgives but does not excuse. Did you hear that? 
Grace forgives, but does not excuse. Where do I get that from? Romans 5 and 6. The end of Romans 5 is dealing with the grace of God and how it saves us and so on. And it, and it says, you know, wherever sin abounds, grace much more abounds. In other words, how much I've sinned, God's grace is there to, to cover it for me and forgive me. But the Apostle Paul anticipated that people would say, well then, why don't I just sin a lot more to get a lot more grace? And he says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, don't make a mockery of that. You can be gracious to forgive, but not excuse. There's work to be done in all of our lives, in all of these areas. Next, understanding versus shaming. A little bit of a blend from, from the first one, but when you understand, when you, you may not understand how the, you, you, you yourself can't step into the male mind, but if you understand, the scriptures make it pretty clear that men have this problem. All throughout the scriptures, David and Bathsheba, you, you see it, you just see it over and over and over again. It seems so often that the man is the one that has this problem, all right? You may not understand it, you may not step into that world, but you can understand the fact that the scripture says this is true. This is true. And it's a battle. It's a battle, all right? And so understanding rather than shaming helps resolve the problem, helps heal the issue, okay? It's, it's huge. You know, and whenever there's blame shifting like we see here, it's the woman you gave me, it's the serpent and so on. Well, if we had more intimacy in our marriage, I wouldn't look at this. Well, if you would buy me more things, I wouldn't spend as much. All that, that's got to go. That's got to go. There has to be sitting down, walking, talking, even if you need a counselor or whatever, walk through these things together. Understanding versus shaming. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. It's so interesting how much the Lord knows about how we are wired, our DNA, our makeup, whatever terms you want to use. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. All right? Why does God tell the husband to love his wife? Why doesn't he say, wives, love your husbands? He doesn't say that. Husbands, love your wives. Why? Because a wife is more oriented that way. Her tank is filled more with that. You know, how a man loves his wife. And being on the internet is not a way to love your wife. Okay? It would be a struggle, but it's still not the way. So God is saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, reverence your husbands or respect your husbands. There's a book out, came out a number of years ago, called A Love and Respect. And I think they kind of built it off of those two passages. Why? Because a man needs respect even more than he needs love. And God understands that. And here's all these seminars and books and everything else, and God says it in two verses. He knows. He gets it. He knows how we're made. And when we understand, understand that and realize this is what needs to be given to the wife, the love, this is what needs to be given to the husband, the respect, things begin to work. God has got the blueprint. He's got the blueprint with this. And here's the hard one. Matthew 7. Jesus starts out. Judge not, lest you be judged. With the same measure that you judge, that judgment will be measured back to you. First, you hypocrite, take the log out of your eye 
so that you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your husband's eye or your wife's eye or your employee, whatever. The other person's eye, your brother's eye. Now, the genius of Jesus, and I, I think I may have mentioned this a few months back, but the genius of that text, I cannot tell you how deep that text goes. Think with me what he's saying here. For the wife, is Jesus saying to the wife, you mean to tell me that the pornography in his eye is a speck and I've got a log in my eye? Come on! My problem is nowhere near what his problem is. Here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you need to realize that when I'm talking to your husband, I'm saying, take the log out of your eye so that you can take the speck out of your wife's eye. Both have a log, both have a speck. It just depends on the perspective. Just depends on the perspective. To me, oh, my problem is never all that big. It's just, you know, it's a, no, it's a log. It is a log. But I can't see clearly to realize because I have so exaggerated my husband's problem or my wife's problem, whatever, that, that that's the log and I've just simply got a speck. All he's saying is, just examine yourself. Check yourself out before you, you do this. That is genius. It's absolute genius. Because all of us think that we're the ones with the speck and the other person has the log. And Jesus says, no, no. You both have a log. You both have a speck. It just depends on how you look at it. And that alone helps heal the situation. I have said this so many times to young couples when I used to do a lot of marriage counseling. And I, I'm going to just lay this out. Before a couple gets married, I would always say this. I'd go through a bunch of questions. and One thing I would always say. Is there anything before you get married that you have not told your future spouse that once you get married and they find out, it's going to be big trouble. Is there anything that you have not told one another? Like, oh, why didn't I tell you I've been married five times? <laughs> or I've robbed a bank or whatever. Is there anything that you have not told your future spouse that once they find out, it's going to be a big problem? Because outside the marriage... It's a pebble. Inside the marriage, it's a boulder. It's the rock of Gibraltar. It is huge. If you've got a problem in this area, honey, I'm struggling with stuff I look at on the internet. I don't want you to find out later. I, I'm, it's just, I'm just being up front, all right? Honey, I, I struggle with spending too much, whatever. I just want you to know up front. Because once they find out later, they feel like you've been hiding something. Now there's all kinds of suspicion and problems. I'm simply saying that there are many times when husband and wives simply need to sit down and spend some time together walking through life because we all struggle. We all have logs and beams in our eyes and specks. We've got all these things that are going on. But here's what ends up happening. Once people discover something about the other one, you wind up taking the person who is made in the image and likeness of God who has a sin in their life be it immorality, whatever it happens to be. And the person is no longer a person. They now become a sin in your eyes. He is depraved. We're all depraved. She's materialistic. We're all materialistic. Just a different degree. All right? 
And so when you label the person, rather than seeing the sin in the person, the sin becomes the person. And the focus becomes that. And that is a problem in marriage. That's a problem anywhere. When you look at somebody and you say, well, they're lazy. He, they are lazy. Now, they've got the sin of laziness. They're struggling with it. But when you call somebody that, that's what they become. That's, what they, that, that's how they're labeled and how they see themselves. That's not healthy. We're just touching on this. Next week, we're going to look at how do we persevere in a world that is just continuing to, to just tear us apart. And I want to I end on, on this note. Um, I don't want this to be a subject of controversy and causing even more problems. One of the things that Bruce Campbell and I have talked a lot about, Jim Sopp, we've talked about some of these things actually becoming more of a problem when you end up discussing it. But if you'll just think through, you even have to listen to the message again, it's on the internet, just think through some of these things and realize the issue of difference between judging and shaming and guilt and how you care and empathize, all those things play a huge role. Because we want to see healing. We want to see healing, not more and more conflict. We want to see healing in the lives of our nation in this area. And it could start here. Who knows where it's going to start. But here's, here's the beauty of all of it. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every manner, just as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in the same way, yet without sin. Jesus never had a lustful thought. If he had, if Jesus had, he would not qualify to die for your sin and mine. It required a perfect Lamb of God, without blemish, without spot. And Jesus never looked at what he shouldn't look at. His eyes always turned away. But he was a man. And he was tempted in every manner as we are tempted in. And the beauty of him being without sin, and the beauty of him having lived this perfect life, is that you and I couldn't live it. We've all failed. We've all looked at things we shouldn't have looked at. We've bought things we shouldn't have bought. We've said things we shouldn't have said. But thank God, Jesus never did. And as a result of that, as a result of that perfection, that perfect life, when you come to Christ, when you come to him with all of your baggage and you drop it at the foot of the cross and you realize it's forgiven. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Every day is a fresh day, a new start. A new start on the internet, a new start with every single thing. It's a new day. Grace forgives, but it doesn't excuse. But it's always there. It is always there. The grace of God is always, always there. And when that rules in a home, and it rules in a marriage, and it rules in a relationship, there is healing and there is strength every single day of the year. That's the beauty of knowing the Lord Jesus. So if you happen to be here today, and you're struggling, and all of us are, and you've got guilt, you don't even know where to put it. You don't know what to do with it. You take it to the cross, and you say, I now for the first time realize that Jesus Christ died in my place, paid the penalty for my sin, and rose again the third day, and is offering me salvation as a free gift, unmerited. All the grace poured out upon me of all the things I've ever done wrong. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short time to deal with a very awkward and troubling subject matter. But thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray for incredible healing in the marriages in this church in many different areas. 
And Lord, most of all, as I think of people that may be here today that have never put their full trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus, that today would be the day that they would do just that. And so, Father, we thank you that this would be a, a fresh start, a new start, a healing of marriages and, and lives. And this would spread throughout our nation, Lord, that you would bring about revival. And Lord, I pray even for our time to pray tonight that you'd bring many out to call upon your name. Lord, because our nation needs so much help, and all of us do. We thank you for your grace. Now, Lord, I pray that you would dismiss us with that grace with this final number, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.